All right, flip to Luke 1. We're going to look at Luke's account today. Luke chapter 1, and we're just going to focus our time on verses 67 through 80. Christmas, the dawn of hope is what I'm calling this. And this, this section is Zechariah's his song, if you will. You can call it that. And, um, you know, Luke and Matthew both tell different aspects of the, of the story of Christmas. And Matthew, of course, emphasizes uh, the, the issue with the wise men and Herod. And Herod says, hey, tell me where the kid's born so I can go worship him. And all of us laugh at that nonsensical narrative because, of course, Herod does not want another king to be born. Um, Luke then also has the, the shepherd story. So they, they tell different aspects of the Christmas story. But I want to focus in on Luke 1, 67 through 80. So let's read that and then we'll pray. Luke 1, verse 67, these are the words of God. And his father, his being, of course, John the Baptist, his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, speaking of John the Baptist. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the days of his public appearance to Israel. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we rejoice this day because of what Christmas represents, and that being the dawn of hope, a new age of blessing for all mankind. Father, we are filled with joy and gratitude for the truth of your word, and we ask and pray that this truth would saturate our nation and all nations. Oftentimes, we simply grope around in the dark doing our own things instead of doing things your way. So we pray, Father, that the truth of Christmas, with all the lights strewn about pointing to the light of the world, would be our soul's focus and delight. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen, amen indeed. So the focus, uh, as I mentioned, of our time here this morning will be mostly centered on Luke 1, and that's Luke 1, verses 78 and 79. And that's just simply two verses of what's called the Benedictus. That is a Latin word that just simply means praise be. So this is Zechariah's prophecy concerning his own son, his son being John, John the Baptist, or John the Presbyterian, if you want to have jokes about it. <laughs> and it's also, though, about John's correlative ministry with the coming Messiah, his cousin Jesus. So uh, Mary and Elizabeth are, are um, cousins and are friends and, and relatives, I should say. And, and now Zechariah gives this uh, wonderful prophecy. So the song itself, if you can, if you can you know, pay close attention. If your Bible has cross-references, you'll see these in there. But the song itself is immersed in the Hebrew Scriptures, and there are references all over the Old Testament here in his song. 
So I just want to give you the context of the story and sort of briefly and, and quickly try to give you um, the Christmas story up until this point of this, of this song. So Zechariah, he was a priest and he was on duty in the temple as a priest when the angel of the Lord showed up and answered his prayer. The angel promised Zechariah that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a child. And the angel also said that the child's name was to be John. And we'll learn later that there was an argument over his name and the relatives didn't understand why John, why not Zechariah? You, you should keep with the name. Well, no, because the angel said so. So the angel would go on to talk about John being full of the Holy Spirit. That was one thing that was going to mark his life. He's going to be full of the Holy Spirit and he's going to be given the power of Elijah. Elijah's brought up a lot in this and that's an Old Testament reference to Malachi. And given the power of Elijah so as to turn the hearts of parents to their children, to make the disobedient full of wisdom, and to get people prepped for God to do something new in this time. So that was the conversation between the angel and Zechariah. Of course, now we find out that the angel's name is Gabriel. Gabriel's the, the, the name of the angel. And since Zechariah basically exhibited a just a slight shred of unbelief during their interaction when those things were told to him, Gabriel said, well, you're going to be mute for a time. If you remember the story, Zechariah was unable to speak for, for a while. And Gabriel said, until these things essentially take place. So when your son's born and Jesus comes on the scene, yeah, you know, then you can talk again. So he lost his voice for a while. So coming out of the temple, though, Zechariah, he, he left his interaction with Gabriel. He leaves the temple, and the people knew that he had seen a vision. There was something about him, but of course he couldn't speak. Then we find out Elizabeth is pregnant, and of course she goes into seclusion for five months. Next up for Gabriel, because this was a busy time for him and his angelic duty, next up for Gabriel was the announcement in Nazareth of Galilee to a young virgin girl named Mary, probably 13, 14, 15, in that range. Um, she gets visited by the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel tells her that she will conceive in her womb and she will bear a son. And again, we have this name thing. Gabriel says his name shall be called Jesus, Yeshua. He will be great and he will be called Son of the Most High. And get this, because this is um, <laughs> something that people skip over or gloss over. But Gabriel says the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. Gabriel says it before Jesus is even born. That God is going to give this child, Jesus, the throne of his ancestor, David. So he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. That's an obvious echo of Deuteron excuse me, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. The Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, and to him is given dominion and, and power and authority and so on. So Gabriel, the angel, explains to Mary, after asking how this could be, she asks, how, how could this possibly be? Well, he explains that the Holy Spirit of God himself will overshadow her. This is God's responsibility. God is going to do it. He will be born and he will be holy, that is, he will be consecrated as the Son of God in the flesh. Remember the, the song, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Gabriel also spills the beans by explaining that her relative, Elizabeth, is heading into her third trimester at this point. For nothing will be impossible with God, Gabriel says. 
So Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. I'm sure they sat down and drank organic teas together uh, or something. And miraculously, though, in that moment, something happens. If you recall the story, John leaps in the womb. Do you remember the story? So we should take that to mean that he's already preparing the way of the Lord. (laughs) He's already. He's acknowledged who it is by the Holy Spirit's power. Uh, I've heard many a sermons on abortion start here, and it's a great passage for that. Um, but, but for vocationally speaking, John's responsibility was to prepare the way of the Lord. He's already doing it, and he's not even out of the womb yet. <laughs> so the two rejoice, and Mary sings her song of praise to God, which echoes the song of Hannah, the story of Hannah, same, she was barren and she prayed. This is from uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. So as the story goes on, three months later, Three months after this, John is born, and Elizabeth insists that his name is John. And again, the relatives suggested otherwise. Are you sure? You, I don't know if you've ever had somebody tell you that. Are you sure that's what you want to name your kid? Sounds like a weird name. You shouldn't do that. That's a social faux pas. <laughs> uh, unless it's really crazy, then maybe it's a good thing that you intervene. Um, <laughs> You know, Maharshala has baths, right? Uh, that's our kid. So, so um, it's interesting, too, in the interaction. One, uh, once Zechariah, he, he writes on a tablet, and kids, it wasn't an iPad, just so we're clear. But he writes on a tablet, his name is John, and just kind of holds it up. His name is John. So Zechariah can't speak, but he's able to write it out. So that's a, that's a good thing. And then, of course, once that happens, his mouth opens, and... And imagine not being able to speak for several months. And what is the first thing he does? Does he complain? Oh, wow, that was a curse, God. Why would you do that? No, he's, he can't contain himself. He belts out a praise, this Holy Spirit prophecy. And that's our passage here. So I just want to kind of w- run through it and make some comments as we go. Verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He acknowledges that God has in this moment showed up. He showed himself to be faithful. And when everything was quiet around them, God showed up. Same thing you learn from when the uh, Israelites are enslaved in Egypt. It's, it's this figure of speech in the scripture where God remembers his covenant. Not that he has amnesia and he forgets from time to time. Oh, that's right. I did make a covenant with Abraham. No, he says he remembers his covenant. And when God remembers, he acts. And Zechariah acknowledges that here. He has visited his people. God is doing something here. And look at verse 69 and 70. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old. So this mighty Savior, literally in the ESV, it's horn of salvation. That's the literal Greek translation, a horn of salvation. It's an echo of 2 Samuel 22 in, in Psalm 18. Horns were used in battle to unify the army, and horns were also a signal of strength. Um, If you are in um, an army and you're prepping for battle, you're in your barracks, you're cleaning your weapons and so on and so forth, and you hear the battle cry, the horn, that is a motivating feature of battle. When you hear the horn, you know, okay, things are about to go down here. And it's a signal of strength. It's a signal of unity. It's a signal of God in this moment. Jesus is like that horn. He's blowing the horn with John the Baptist and then with Jesus. So the God of Israel, in other words, has sounded the alarm in these events. 
these strange and unique events with Gabriel visiting Elizabeth and then Mary, God is sounding the alarm. In Zechariah, he acknowledges that God has been faithful to his promises to David. He's been faithful to his promises uh, to the pro- in the prophets of old. So what God, in other words, has done then, what he did then, he's doing now again. And that's how our God works. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. The prophets, interestingly, always promise deliverance. The prophets would always, if you repent, God will deliver you. God will deliver Israel from her enemies. And this, of course, typically in the prophets would be understood in terms of this messianic person would be raised up. This messianic paradigm and God would raise up a deliverer. Uh, You think of David, you know, after Saul had sinned against God and not totally destroyed the, um, the Agai, of course, the, the king. And so God raises up David. David's this small person. He's not big and strapping like Saul. He wasn't even the oldest son of Jesse. But David is anointed. God raises up a deliverer. And that's what he did with the judges. He did it through the kings. And of course, not all kings were good, but God is doing it now in, in Jesus. To destroy this ultimate Davidic king would come to destroy the enemies of God and raise up his people. Look at verses 72 through 75. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, all our days. When God delivered Israel in the past, he did so according to his oath. He did so according to his own covenant faithfulness. Uh, he did, no one strong-armed God into moving. We can't do that today, and nor should we try. But we can petition God, and the Psalms are all about that, petitioning God to move for him to act, for him to destroy his enemies. And so it's a perfectly righteous prayer to ask God to either cause Bill Gates to repent or destroy him and all of his money because it's what it's laid up for the just anyway. So we'll we'll take it. Uh, <laughs> but it's perfectly just for the enemies of God to, to perish. Either they will repent or they will perish. It's the same message Jesus has proclaimed. So when God delivers, he delivers because of his own prerogative. And if Israel would repent, then of course he would relent. If Israel would fall, he would sanction his children, like we just saw from from, uh, Psalm 25. But the far greater deliverance emphasized here by Zechariah is deliverance from their enemies. Deliverance from their enemies. Picture yourself in the first century. You're in Israel, but guess who else is there? (laughs) Rome. Rome. Roman pagan rule and occupation of Israel was not justice. It was not according to the, to the plan of God. Of course, God used it, though, to purify his children. God used Rome and raised Rome up for very specific reasons, of course, um, Jesus being one of those reasons. But just like Israel was to leave Egypt to worship God, so Zechariah desired to be delivered in order to serve the living God in terms of his covenant. So transpose that today. Um, we would like, for example, big government and big pharma to go away. Why would we like that to go away? Well, because we want to worship God the way he says to be worshipped, and that includes what happens in the civil realm. 
So we want God to be acknowledged in those places because that's the truth of, of what the Bible tells us. So we, we don't want that to go because, well, it's just a minor inconvenience. It's a major inconvenience, but it's also an impediment to the greater reality of what God wants, and that's the establishment of justice in the world. Verse 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John the Baptizer, I actually don't like that title because it confuses people denominationally. He was the first Baptist, kind of a funny joke, you know. He, we should really call him John the Prophet. Jesus calls him as much, the greatest of the prophets, actually. And Zechariah says as much here. John the baptizer is John the prophet. He's John the prophet preparing the way of the Lord, which is an echo of Isaiah and Malachi as well. So he will bring knowledge where ignorance runs rampant. That was his task. He will bring knowledge where, where ignorance runs rampant. This, the great knowledge that John the Baptist is going to bring will be the forgiveness of sins offered by the one to whom John is pointing. And who is he pointing to? Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazareth, the Son of God, the Lord of all. And then our two texts, where I will just focus the rest of our time, uh, will be verses 78 and 79. It says, Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise, if you're King James, it says the day spring, or the NRSV says dawn from on high, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So let's pull out some of that from, from this, these two verses here. The Bible says in Malachi 4.2, you may recall this, But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, S-U-N, not S-O-N, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. The dawn the sunrise in the east, the day spring shall rise. Like a sunset, the Messiah, or excuse me, a sunrise, the Messiah was to come because of the tender mercy of our God. When you think of God being described as tender mercy, it's usually not a, one thing that we think about foremost, but it's here and it is a way to describe it. The Greek word uh, actually speaks of compassion from the bowels. One of my favorite Greek, Greek words is splank needs oh my. Splank needs oh my. Yeah, it's hilarious sounding. But it's literally compassion from the innermost parts of your being, your bowels. The, the, emotional, the emotional feeling you have in, in, the, in your gut, that's what he describes. This tender mercy deep within the recesses of the heart of God is this magnificent mercy. And when Jesus Christ was born on Christmas Day... It was as if a new sunrise had come, unlike anything the world had ever seen. The sunrise, or the day spring here in the birth of Christ, is the same son of righteousness from Malachi. Now, question. Kids, this is for you too. Have you ever looked up into the blue sky and seen sunlight from the heavens punching and barreling down through the clouds? And you stop and you think, wow, it's as if the heavens were opened up. And it, especially when out toward the mountains here, it becomes very pretty, very beautiful. But I've, I've seen a few of those in my time, and it's remarkable, uh, especially when the clouds are a certain way and the sunlight is just penetrating through and flooding the earth and everything in its path. And it's this remarkable picture. The sun, 
which gives light to our world, pushes away the darkness, and in its path lies joy, beauty, and delight. And the sun, you think about it just scientifically, the sun sustains our world in many ways. Of course, not least is the, the fact that it brings warmth to us. And also, you also have this assist, assistance in something very basic called photosynthesis. <laughs> so the sun is, we need the sun, essentially. We need the sun for life to be sustained on earth. And, and we know in Revelation, in the fullness of time, when, when the enemies of God are destroyed and Christ redeems the earth fully and finally, there will be no sun because the radiance will come from God himself. But for now, we need, we need the sun. We need it to have life sustained. But the sun, most importantly, helps us see creation. It helps us see. It helps us look at each other in the face with, without a mask on. We can see smiles. We can see eyes. We can see delight or we can see pain. But the light helps us see. It helps us process the world around us. Malachi's point and Malachi 4, 2, about the son of righteousness, and it's the same point that Zechariah is, is what he himself understood about the Messiah, is that Jesus is that light of the world, dispelling the darkness and healing the world of all of its ailments and, and, and maladies. That's what he does. That's Jesus Christ himself. As the light of the world, he helps us see. He helps us see. The funny thing about the, the Greek word sunrise there in, in Luke 1, 70, Eight is that it can also mean a branch or a shoot. The word itself can be translated either way, depending on the context. A lot of Greek words are like that. And so when you think of a branch or a shoot, as in this growing plant, or um, we have these, I forget the name of the trees that are outside our house right now. What are they called? Crate myrtle. Right? Something like that. Okay, so if you cut them like basically cut the tops off it just explodes so they were cut i think what maybe in july i can't remember now or april but by the end of the year they had grown very fast so think of that image when you think of a shoot something that grow had grown out of something that was there like a tree so he springs forth he's from the stump of david that's what isaiah 11 says the shoot will spring forth from the stump of david that's jesus but the the point here remains it's the same point that emberly read in isaiah 9 this branch light would come to establish righteousness and justice in the world through the healing balm of the gospel message that was the promise and the world of course needs hope does it does it not need hope right now do you i mean <laughs> 2020 has sort of been a year of self-inflicted darkness, we could say. So you need hope. We all need hope. Uh, dire straits and only dire straits continue to be poured on with fear and, um, you know, fear on the news, fear everywhere you look. All that produces is despair and sorrow over and over and over again. And the reason that we can call Christmas the dawn of hope is because the light of the world stepped down into the darkness of sin and misery to, to a people living in the shadow of death, unable to strike the flint of hope because of multiplied transgressions. And in that moment, the light awakened us to a new reality, a new living hope. See, Christ being the light of the world is Christ being the righteousness of the world, Christ being the just one of the world, bringing righteousness and justice 
to the world, in the world, and for the world. The world apart from Christ clings to desperation, to sin and darkness. Apart from Christ, people cling to sin, they cling to darkness, they, they cling to lies, they cling, cling to everything that is the opposite of, of holiness. It wants to engulf anything and everything in its path. The reason you keep being inundated about cases is because fear sells. Fear sells, and it's a billion-dollar industry. So it keeps happening. And for decades here in America, we've seen political leaders go the way of Herod, trying to squash the light of children through the sin of abortion. We've seen men and women try to extinguish the light of Christ throughout history. Herod himself, remember, tried to squash killing the, the two-year-old or under males in, in, um, in Bethlehem. That's a pattern. That's a pattern, trying to squash the light of Christ. We've seen men and women try to extinguish the light of Christ all throughout history. Soviet Russia, anywhere, anywhere communism goes, it wants to destroy. That's what it tries to do. Tyrants and philosophers, bureaucrats and kings, all of them had tried to do what Herod could not do, turn the light off, turn the blinding light of the gospel off. That's what our world wants to do. Because Christ is light of the world, we must declare today that the only hope for the world is to step into this light. I mentioned this book earlier, The Live Not By Lies, this idea that Jesus Christ is the embodiment of truth, an embodiment of truth. He says in, in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the light. If Christ is the truth and we abide in the truth, that means we cannot abide in lies. We cannot abide in darkness. We cannot abide in, in the narratives that are going on in the mainstream world now that want to declare otherwise. We can't live by the lie that, that somehow you can be fruitful and multiply um, with certain categories of gender and marriage. We can't live by those lies at all. So we have to live in the truth. We have to. But the question is, do we really believe that it's the light? Do we really, when it's hard, when marriages are in trouble, when families are torn apart, when, when the world around you seems to be cr crashing down, do you really believe that Christ is the light? One of my favorite things I, this time, and Mary and I were just commenting all weekend, we just, we love our tree, do we not? Our tree this year is the most non-epic epic tree in the world and it's shorter than i am but what makes it easier you know for decorating but we just really like it and i think one of the things that we like about it is one we've decorated with only uh, i think it's just all our kids ornaments we don't even have like you know the old target ornaments we bought you know 20 years ago um we yeah well 15 years ago anyway <laughs> you get the point but it's a very simple tree, and we have very simple lights on it, and it's fun to look at. We just, we just enjoy the tree. So I, I like lights that are placed on trees. I like lights that are placed on houses. Uh, there are some really cool houses I know in the Wilson neighborhood uh, that are really pretty. Downtown Warrington right now, if you go, if you haven't been, you should go. It's very pretty at night. They did a really good job with it. But the funny thing is, though, is I'm walking, you know, driving through downtown and you see the, the lights on the trees and stuff. But the funny thing is I don't think most people realize what it is they're really doing with the lights and why the lights matter. They don't realize that even light itself, light itself in these bulbs that look really pretty, 
all of that belongs to Christ. All of it belongs to the Christians. They're ours. The lights are ours. And the reason the lights are ours is because Christ is the light of the world. So yeah, sure, it looks pretty. Objectively speaking, it looks really pretty on, on trees. It looks pretty on houses. Not all houses. Some are just hack jobs. <laughs> but it's, you know, it can be pretty. All of the colors and so on. It has this certain aesthetic beauty to it and loveliness about light and during this time of year. So I, I, can, re- I can really appreciate a well-lit tree in a house. Absolutely. But what most don't know is what they're doing is declaring the truth of the gospel. Think about it. If Christ isn't Lord of all, why even bother putting lights up? What does it say about you? Why put lights on at all? Why does it matter this time of year? If the world is just despair and sorrow, why bother with light? Why even bother? Why not just embrace the darkness? And what is, and I think that's what we have to remember is that's what it is. It's darkness. Apart from Christ, all there is is sin and ruin and and cultural dilapidation and government overreach and and mandatory medical procedures and all these different things. That's that's the world we have. And yet all men, women, and children are made in the image of likeness of God, which means there's a flicker there whether they know it or not. So our leaders in Warrington, whether it's the town itself, the elected bureaucrats there, when I go, drive through there and see all those lights, I'm thinking, yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, he's light of the world. And you might put them on because you think they look nice. And you're right, they look nice. It's beautiful to see a tree lit up in the darkness. It just stands out in, in a certain way. But the reason it does is because God owns light and Christ is the light. Which is another way of suggesting that Christmas is inherently political. (laughs) It's inherently political because no despot has ever been able to extinguish that light, no matter how hard they try. No sinner is so far gone that they cannot... The light cannot shine through. No culture is so decayed by the absolute wreckage of sin that Christ cannot bring healing in his wings. Christmas is truly the dawn of hope. It's the arrival of the Messiah whose mission is to restore the whole man. And what we must do is not devalue or undervalue the powerful message of Christmas. Don't for a second put Christmas back on the shelf next week and, and, and only to forget about its world-shaking message and what it really means and what it has for our nation. Don't relegate the Christmas story to a mere cultural memory as though Christendom were over. Clearly, America's gone. We can't redeem it. It's irredeemable, so let's just give up and retreat to the hills. Don't. Don't do that. It's not any of those things. Christmas is an it's imperative that we take Christmas for what it really is. Christmas means that history is no longer permitted to be governed by darkness. Our nation is no longer permitted to be governed by darkness. We have the light of Christ. It's no longer to be permitted um, to be ruled by despots and pagan ideologies. History is to be sanctified. You, my friends, are are to be sanctified. Nations are to be sanctified. Why? Because God took on flesh and brought hope to the world. And finally, just remember the third stanza from the hymn, Hark the the Herald Angels Sing. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth, 
Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you sent Christ, the light of the world, to, to, to bring truth to us, to bring reality to, to us in a way that we had never known. Um, when we live in rebellion, we know, Father, that we live in darkness, and we like the darkness. Sin loves to hide. It loves the darkness. But we pray and ask that this bold message of Christmas would, would ring true in our time, that this dawn of hope would, in fact, um, penetrate the world in, in a way perhaps we've never seen before through revival, repentance, and reformation. We thank you for Christ being born, coming to redeem us, to save us from our sins. So we pray uh, that he would be acknowledged in our, in our families, in our, in, our, in our homes, Lord, and ultimately in this county, in this nation, and in the world. So we thank you that there is hope. We thank you that the light of Christ is here with us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.